So several years ago, my wife had a daycare business that operated out of our home. She did it for about eight or nine years. But I'll never forget the day that I got this phone call from her saying, hey, I need you to come home from work. The house caught fire. <laughs> now, that's an easy exit from work because if you say, I got to leave right now, my house is on fire, <laughs> they're going to let you go. But I did take some solace in the fact that it was my wife calling and her voice was no longer or not frantic in any way, shape, or form. It turns out what had happened is that she noticed a smell, a smell in the house, and grabbed all the kids in the daycare. There were probably seven or eight of them, and they kind of walked around the house trying to figure out where it was. They thought it was in the kitchen or they thought it was somewhere else, and they eventually found it in the toy room. And as they, they pulled plastic, we had a, a, a mural on the wall of a pirate ship. Right? But as they pulled that away from the wall, they found that there was an outlet underneath it and the outlet was smoking and smoke started coming up the wall. And so Heather grabbed my, my 10 year old, my then 10 year old daughter at the time, made her second command in command and kind of said, go next door and find out if our neighbor, Mrs. Slaybaugh, an elderly lady, would, would, would let us stay there so we can get out of the house like right now. Because it's the middle of February, you don't really need to be running around outside. It's not that simple. So Rachel ran next door while Heather bundled up all the kids just as quickly as she could. And fortunately, Mrs. Slaybaugh, it's wonderful to have great neighbors, right? Moves, lets them go next door. And not only does she let nine children crying, screaming, crazed kids into her house, uh, she also uh, whips a bunch of frozen pizzas out of the freezer and feeds them lunch. Again, great neighbors are an important and valuable thing. And so Heather calls 911, she calls the fire department. And because of the where our house was located, not just one, not just two, not just three, but four fire departments all show up at the same time, which the kids thought was the coolest thing ever. Certainly the most interesting thing to happen in the neighborhood in months, right? <laughs> just as people were opening their windows and looking out going, what's going on there? But the firemen came inside and they, they quickly diagnosed the issue. There was a short in the wire of the outlet. One of the one of the one of the wires had gotten crossed or, or the connection had broken and there was simply this a short and the sparks that come with it now it's interesting to me how such a short and such a tiny little wire could cause such havoc right in fact we were told we weren't allowed to reopen the daycare until the problem was repaired it was that serious this this short in our electrical system seemingly innocuous thing that made it impossible for us to operate until it was repaired. I think we have those kinds of shorts in our relationships sometimes too, where we, we don't stay connected to people maybe the way we should. You know, I have a number of friends that I was super close with in high school, but decades later, I would have said then, I would have said, they'll do anything for me, I will do anything for them, we will be friends forever. But at this point, I keep in somewhat contact with maybe two and the rest I really don't have any connection to at all. Some of that was time and space as we moved on, but some of that was a lack of intentionality to keep that connection tight 
I see that happen in relationships, intimate relationships all the time with a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a, a husband and wife where they, they, their relationship started off very connected, right? They're very much together, but somewhere the wires kind of shorted out and they kind of drifted away from each other. And before they know it, they turn around and there's smoke, right? And where there's smoke, there is often fire causing that. I think that kind of disconnect or short can also happen in our relationship with God where we can be kind of cruising along, doing life. Maybe we came to know the Lord at a young age. or But over time, if we don't maintain the connection, right? Just like you got to maintain the electrical wires in your house. You got to maintain a relationship with your spouse or your significant other. If we don't maintain the relationship with God, it too can short out and we can become very disconnected from him. And we often don't even notice it until the house is on fire right? Until something has gone wrong and there's smoke and you're scared. As we continue our series, Jesus in the Psalms, it's the psalmist's, well, connection, personal connection with God that draws us passionately and repeatedly into the Psalms. We talked a little last week about the ebbs and flows of life and, and the challenges and what it means to bear your heart. The Psalms certainly do that. But this Psalm in particular seems to garner a lot of love. <laughs> so many people would list this as among their favorite Psalms. You likely have heard it at some point, maybe at a, at a funeral or it's read regularly by some. You might have grown up learning it, quoting, being able to quote it. And that, that psalm is Psalm 23. Now we're going to read out of the CSB today. And if you've been around Christian circles for decades, that's probably not the translation you learned it in. And so some of the words might be a little different. If you never learned it before, then nothing will be different. But, but it might be different for you. And what I would say is this. I think it's good to look at different translations sometimes because it sparks something, no pun intended with the short thing, but it, it allows us to see things maybe a little differently than we would have seen them before. So we're going to read Psalm chapter 23, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to read out of the CSB, and it says this, The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. And even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. You know, if you, again, back to if you grew up learning this, it was probably something along the lines of, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And truthfully, as much as I love that older translation, because I do, if you asked me to quote Psalm 23, it's probably going to come out, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. <laughs> but that simple change of want to need, I think, kind of highlights highlights a reality for us. We see this picture of God as the shepherd, something that is 
pervasive throughout the Old Testament. We see in Genesis chapter 48 where Jacob is beginning to to bless his sons at the end of his life. And he invokes this. He says in verse 15 of chapter 48 of Genesis, he says, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all the days of my life. Which frankly, (laughs) if you know Jacob, Jacob spent a whole lot of his life not walking with the Lord, and yet still he can get back to the end of his life and say, he was there the entire time. He is my shepherd. That's a sermon all by itself. But we also see God described as the shepherd who was there when his people strayed, when they they wandered off. And Jesus would do the same when he speaks of the parable of the lost sheep and going out to retrieve this lost sheep. But God talks about it in 1 Kings chapter 22, where he says, look, he says, so Micah said, I saw all Israel scattered in the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, they have no master. Please let everyone return home in peace as he's calling them back when they are strayed and they are not listening and they are walking away from him as their shepherd. Because that is, after all, the shepherd's role. The shepherd is to care for the flock another word that's used often in the Old Testament. We also see the good shepherd being someone who is protecting and leading. Isaiah chapter 40 says this, he, meaning the Lord, protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and he carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads those that are nursing. This is a picture of someone who is not only making sure they stay safe, but doing whatever is necessary to keep them safe, to protect them, to carry them if need be, and to lead them to the nourishment they need, even maybe when they're a lamb and they're too young to recognize it. This is also a picture that is, this picture of a shepherd is made so much clearer in the arrival of Jesus. In John chapter 10, Jesus declares himself the shepherd. He says in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And we know that Jesus did that. It's the reason we celebrate him and the reason we have salvation, right? And the reason we're able to call him Lord of our lives is because he was and did that for us. In verse 14 and 15 of that chapter, he says, again, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me, I know the father. And then the risen Jesus connects his role directly to the Psalms, this role of good shepherd. He says in in Luke 24, verse 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, right? He's He's already been buried and resurrected. He says that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. This is the presence or the description of a vigilant shepherd who is caring for his flock, watching over his flock, and is vigilant beyond measure. He will never look away. He will never lose sight of them. But this next phrase, I have what I need, right? I talked about that. I shall not want is the traditional translation. But to say I have what I need is important. That word need in the Hebrew is kashar, and it means to lack or to be decreased, right? I will have what I need. I will be lacking nothing, right? Lacking nothing. I will not be diminished or decreased. Or The word I think that's appropriate here, the phrasing is, I will not become 
empty. In 1 Kings chapter 17, we see this incredible story of Elijah and the widow, where Elijah is in the middle of a drought. Actually, all of Israel is in the middle of a drought. How can one person be in the middle of a drought? The whole, the whole country is in the middle of this drought, and he comes upon a widow, and he needs something to drink and something to eat. And she says, look, I don't have enough. I've barely got enough for me and my child. There's no way. And he says, okay, I'm a prophet of God. And he says in verse 14 of 1 Kings 17, he says, for this is what the Lord of God of Israel says, the flour jar will not become empty. And there's that phrasing. That's the kashar. It will not lack. It will not be decreased. It will not leave you wanting, right? It will not become empty and the oil jug will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the surface of the land. He says, whatever you have will make it. It will last. I, I, I think I think that's the important part here about delineating between I will have what I need and I shall not want. And I know we don't intentionally read something more into that phrase than I shall not want, but I think sometimes we inherently absorb it as a, a way of saying, well, God's going to give me everything I want or everything I need. I'm sure you've heard that before, but those aren't two interchangeable terms. Want and need are very, very different, right? Ask a two-year-old what they want, <laughs> and as a parent, recognizing what they need. Those are two very, very different things, even if we, even as adults, don't always see that. But the picture he's trying to draw here is of someone who is worn out. The Lord is my shepherd. I will have what I need. You would almost hear the desperation in his voice like he's at the end of his rope right he's nearly empty he's nearly out of steam what do you do when that happens when you're in your deepest darkest places have you ever been like you're at the end of the rope like the the work you're you're doing it feels like it's never ending your job just demands more and more and more to, of your time maybe you've been in a situation where you or a loved one has one or more health crises one right after the other and you feel like can i just can't get a break this is just not going to stop or maybe your relationships are falling apart or or anyone or turn on the news and you can easily feel like you're at the end of the rope because the world is invariably ending right it's it's if you've ever been at the place where you just feel like you have nothing left you have nothing left to give to give for you, to give for your family, or even to forgive for God, right? You're done. That's where the psalmist is as he begins this psalm. He's in a place where he's at the bottom of the barrel and wondering what is going on here. And truthfully, he's God is using him to remind himself, to remind the psalmist, which is traditionally David here, to remind the psalmist and us that when we allow the Lord to shepherd us, to lead us, and sometimes even carry us, right, as he did in Isaiah, that we can be refilled. We can be kept from being empty. We will have what we need. And then in verse two, he says, he lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life and leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. This notion of green pastures is a renewing or, or a um, being in the lushness of God's very presence. That, that word pasture could mean the actual sheep's pasture, 
but it could also imply the home in which the shepherd lives. What it is to say is that these pastures are if you're in the presence of God and if you're willing to keep that connection strong, even in your most desperate times, he can renew you just by being in his presence. He goes further when he talks about the quiet waters. That literally means the resting waters, the place where you can find rest out of the stream, kind of the eddy off to the side. If you've ever seen a creek or a river where the water's flowing fast, oftentimes it's over a waterfall or there's a little cove cut out where the water kind of slowly swirls off and the current kind of dies off. There are so many fish that love to live in those little pools because they're not fighting against the water. And that is exactly what David's trying to convey here. You are you are hiding in a pool that is provided and built by God for the purpose of your rest because goodness knows you need it, especially when you feel like you're at the end of your rope. A spa day, or for me, a day on the water fishing as refreshing as those could be, ain't got nothing. Ain't got nothing on resting our soul in the very presence of God and allowing him to refill and renew us. The phrase I really want to dial in on here is for his name's sake. I think it's something we often overlook, but it's it's throughout the Psalms. And here it talks about for his name's sake, he guides us. In Psalm 25, he says, for his name's sake, he forgives our sins. And in Psalm 31, it's for his name's sake, he leads us and he delivers us in Psalm 79 for his name's sake. He deals with us out of his goodness, again, for his name's sake. And he lets us live, it says in Psalm 143. He lets us live for his name's sake. Have you ever bragged about your kids? Have you ever corrected your kids in public because they were embarrassing you? When God says, look, I, I do all of these things for my name's sake, This is God saying he feels the same way about his children. We represent, we represent him to the world. And so in lifting us up, the truth is he's also lifting himself up. He's acting in accordance with the the character he's already revealed of who he is throughout the scriptures. He is upholding the honor of what it means to be have him revealed or to have a revelation to come to follow God, to know God. He's saying, look, this is markedly different than what it means to be anybody else. If you're one of mine, if I'm your shepherd and you're my sheep, this is different. And I got to tell you, that's a very good thing because it means God's got skin in the game. God wants to say to us, these are my sheep and I'm proud of them. They make me look good. Bottom line especially in the most difficult times. It's kind of the the situation that Job went through. If you've read the book of Job, at the beginning of Job, Job has everything. And Satan visits God. This is the, the, the scene we see is Satan visiting God and saying, there's nobody righteous on the earth. Why are you even bothering to try to save all these people? It's kind of the implication. And he says, have you considered my servant Job? Job's righteous. I'm telling you he is. And so God proceeds to allow Satan to test Job at varying levels over and over and over again, ever increasing, challenges him, takes away everything. And yet Job remains 
righteous, even in the most difficult times. The truth is, even as his friends were turning on him, even as he lost his family, he lost all of his possessions, even as his wife was telling him, yo, Job, just give up. Just give up and move on so we can we can let this all go and move on with life. Go worship the other God. Go do the other thing you need to do. Quit this. Quit holding on to the Lord. And Job says, no, I'm going to do that. And then when we get to the end of the book, after he yells at Job, <laughs> God's ecstatic that Job has represented him well, even in the most difficult of times, because it's for his namesake too. Just as our kids represent us. Then we get to verse four and it says, even though I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger for you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies and you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. That phrase, I I go through the darkest valley, traditionally is translated as the shadow of death. And that's actually the literal translation of it. You are in the shadow of death, not meaning actually dead, but something that's make you, made you afraid enough or threatens it enough that it's very real or becoming very obvious to you. And yet he says, the psalmist says, I do not fear it. I do not fear it because you, God, are definitively with me, right? When I was a kid, I used to be terrified of the dark, absolutely terrified of the dark. But when I got my tonsils out and I was probably four or so, at the hospital I picked up this stuffed dog. They gave me this stuffed dog named Fred. And it's interesting how when when I was holding Fred, I got braver. I don't know if I got braver for his sake or if I just deluded myself into believing that Fred the stuffed dog was going to attack whatever came out of the darkness to get me. But I was terrified of the dark. Jesus says, or God says to his people here, look, when you're going through that dark time, I'm better than Fred. I'm with you. I'm walking with you. I'm right next to you. In fact, I'm the light. If you reconnect with me, if you reestablish this relationship with me, if you lean into me and maybe even let me carry you for a time, the darkness will give way. It will give way to the light that is me and is the path that I have laid out for you. He then says, look, you've got this this rod and this staff. They they bring me comfort, right? The rod and the staff were used for controlling the flock and for moving the flock from one field to the other. It was used to fight off bears and wolves and to guide stray sheep away from the cliff to make sure they wouldn't fall off. It's interesting though that the psalmist here says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. But he doesn't remove the danger and doesn't remove the darkness. You don't see him say, the darkness has gone away. It just says, even though I'm in the midst of the darkness, I don't fear because you are with me. Because your rod and your staff, as you're protecting me, they care for me, they protect protect me and they bring me comfort. He doesn't say he makes it go away. He does say he will comfort his sheep through it and in doing so, carry them to the ultimate victory. Do you hear that phrase? He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. David certainly had a number of enemies. King Saul, we see in 1 Samuel 18, uh, tried to kill him 
on multiple occasions, over and over and over again, uh, as he realized that he was a threat, that David was a threat to his own control of the kingdom, even though God had anointed David and Saul knew he had wronged God. He wasn't willing to let it go. And so he was a threat. There were even threats from David's inner circle, right? Where he was, his enemies came from within his own family and friends. In fact, we even see in 2 Samuel 16, where even his son, Absalom, repeatedly tried to take over his power and chased him through the desert and tried to kill him. Jesus had to do much of the same. It was his God's own people that hung him on a cross, it was God's own people that persecuted him. It was, the, it was the Romans from outside the mix that said, I'm not sure, Pilate said, I'm not sure there's a reason to, to convict this man and, and to hang him on a cross. But they begged for it. His own people begged for it. Enemies were everywhere and they were even from within. It can very easily feel like in this world that the world is against you or against me and certainly against us as followers of Jesus. We should be reminded though in Matthew chapter 5 verses 11 and 12, he tells us very, very bluntly, blessed are you if you are persecuted for righteousness sake, right? For my sake. Because the prophets were also persecuted in the same way. You're in good company but enemies are going to abound. They're going to be around because we are in a broken and fallen world. And yet we see this glorious picture of David saying, I see you, God, you're you're preparing a table for me, for me to sit down and eat, right? When you're on the run, you don't sit down and eat. When you're trying to defend yourself, fighting against enemies, you don't sit down and eat. And he's saying, God, I can see this. You're preparing me a table so that I can eat and rest right before and refill my heart and my soul right before the presence of my enemies. And the implication is, and there ain't nothing they can do about it. He then says, he anoints my head with oil. That's an ancient custom that really the host was called to anoint only his most honored guests. He would anoint his most honored guests at, at a dinner he was throwing. And so again, we see this picture of of God being the host of David's dinner as his enemies watch, right? And as, as he anoints him and says, you are one of mine, you are one of my sheep. I am honoring you, I am caring for you, I'm exalting you. And it's crazy that God would say that because we are certainly not worthy of that, which is probably part of the point is our holiness is not determined by our mistakes or our Successes, it's really determined by God himself and his goodness, his greatness and his power and capacity and righteousness. We get to carry that shield. We get to put on that cloak and maybe play a little pretend because he's that good. And then we see this, my cup overflows. It literally means my cup is an abundant drink. It's probably referring to something called the shepherd's cup. It would have been a hollowed out stone, a massive hollowed out stone that could hold 40 or 50 gallons of water uh, that was large enough to give the sheep all they needed. And yet God says, he's gonna provide more than that because that cup is going to overflow. I'm not only gonna have what I need, I'm gonna have more than what I need, whether I realize it or not. But the thing is, we have to drink from his cup for ours to overflow too. Because we choose often to replenish our hearts and souls when we are 
in our down times in many other ways. And we don't turn to the shepherd to guide us and tell us where to go and what to do. And, and sometimes we don't trust that it is enough. And I think that's a big deal because we like to think that we know ourselves better than maybe even God knows us. And man, there are so many things wrong with that. I could talk about that for 17 hours. So we, we do not know ourselves nearly as well as God does. Maybe not even nearly as well as your significant other knows you. Who knows? Or your kids. God knows what we need. And he's not only providing what you need, he's providing more than enough. And as we close it, it says, Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. The message here is very, very simple. If you are one of God's flock, if you are one of his sheep, and if most importantly, if you're willing to let him be your shepherd, if you're willing to let him lead you, then your eternity starts now. But to see it, the connection between the shepherd and me and the shepherd and you has to be strong. It can't short out. If you haven't made the Lord your shepherd, and even if you've chosen to say, I trust you with my eternity, do you trust him with your eternity right now? Because that's already started. Do you trust him to be the guide? Do you trust when he says that certain things are bad, that they are? When he trusts that he when he trusts, do you trust when he says your priorities should be ordered a certain way? Justice is really caring for the poor and the the fatherless and the widows, really caring for those who cannot care for themselves. Do you believe that or and and allow him to direct your steps that direction? Or or do you say, "No, I'm going to decide for myself what justice looks like." If you do, you're probably drinking a little too much from your own cup and not enough from the shepherd's. His never runs out. Yours will always leave you thirsty. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and he be gracious to you. May he grant you favor and give you peace. God bless.